May is Fibromyalgia Awareness Month. It's important to raise awareness about this chronic and often debilitating invisible illness known as fibromyalgia. This month-long campaign is an opportunity to educate people about the symptoms, causes, and treatments of fibromyalgia, as well as to show support for those living with these and other related invisible illnesses. Through increased awareness, we can work towards better understanding and management of fibromyalgia and ultimately improve the quality of life for those who are affected by it. And now on to this week's episode. Welcome back. On this week's episode, we will pick up last week where we will continue the discussion about the curious case of John Marsh. He is the second husband of the author of the epic novel, Gone with the Wind. This was authored by Margaret Mitchell. Margaret Mitchell had fibromyalgia, and it appears that her husband likely had fibromyalgia and fibromyalgia-related problems as well. And as we hear about his story, we will also bridge back into hearing more about Margaret's story. The more you hear about other people's stories, the more you will recognize that you are not alone as you go through this battle to go beyond just learning to live with, but also to learn to even lessen and even reverse symptoms of fibromyalgia. Living with fibromyalgia is tough now, but 100 years ago, when Margaret and her husband had to endure the trials of all the ills that go along with fibromyalgia, they didn't have the understanding that we have now. So you'll get a chance to go back in time and get a chance to learn more about the history of medicine as we go along the way. And as frustrating as it may be for most people living with fibromyalgia, at least there's a lot of information that we've gathered over the last 100 years. And compared to then, we do have a lot more, but I'm hoping that this podcast can help shed some light on the latest updates, giving an evidence-based approach, weaving the best of both medical management and lifestyle medicine. If you haven't heard on prior episodes, and this is your first episode, welcome. I am your host, Dr. Michael Lenz. I've been a physician for over 26 years now. I am a pediatrician and internal medicine doctor, also a diplomat of the Board of Lifestyle Medicine and Clinical Lipidology. This episode, as with all episodes, are for educational purposes only and are not meant to replace an office visit with your medical doctor. While I am a doctor, I am not your doctor unless you're a patient of mine and you are listening to the podcast. I welcome you. I hope that this can be used as a starting point on your journey to learn more about fibromyalgia and look at ways to help reduce the suffering that you are living with. I also am author of the book, Conquering Your Fibromyalgia, Real Answers and Real Solutions for Real Pain. So if you like a deeper dive, please take a look and check it out if you are interested. And now we get 
back to where we left off last week, talking about the curious case of John Marsh. He did not die, and the hospital finally discharged him by the end of March. He had been in bed for two months. He remained unwell, and he looked worse, like a famine victim. He could not work, and they took on lots of medical bills as well. As he slowly recuperated, however, with his fiance tending him every step of the way, they determined to carry through with the wedding plans. The illness sealed their union. His condition elicited all of her maternal instincts. Even as her nursing invoked for him the bonding with his mother in illness, Margaret displayed the same need for nurturing, and they quickly reversed roles. The illness made them perfectly compatible, and they set a new date. She was married at the Unitarian Universalist Church in Atlanta on a hot afternoon. John Marsh approved of anything that Margaret said or did. She could do no wrong for him. She found an endless source of tenderness, attention, nurture, and encouragement in the kindly copy editor. He was the self-effacing, selfless mother Maybell Mitchell could never wholly be, at least at her daughter. He provided her endless opportunity to nurse, pet, and baby. She remained very skeptical of sex, pregnancy, and childbirth horrified her. She had no inclination towards biological motherhood and considered her lack of maternal instincts a genetic trait. Children made her wince. English births are depressing too in novels, she said. They seem to be attended by such refinements and scopolamine or ether. The husband stands around the delivery room and mutters about cricket. Scopolamine and ether were medicines to help take away the pain. Her brother-in-law and his wife had visited with their three young children. Margaret endured three weeks of menstrual pain when the couple with small children visited. Feeling out of sorts and vaguely put upon, the young writer found more cause for cynical irritation in the expression of the new bride's enthusiasm for motherhood. She had a catastrophic view of childbirth. I thought that the lack of maternal and paternal instincts in this family was due to mental and not glandular processes, she said. The delightful discovery that she could blame glands and genes for otherwise defined shortcomings. Unwilling to own the decision as a personal choice, Margaret needed the most compelling justification to avoid childbearing. The overlapping categories of health and money, a physical disability in the financial world, bridge the gap between personal choice and social mandate. They created, in effect, her inability to bear children, even as they provided the rationale for such a decision. She jumbles the contradictions almost hopelessly together in these three years. Health and sickness, wealth and poverty, autonomy and selflessness, financial insecurity, terrified Margaret, 
Indeed, the fear of poverty was one of the motivating characteristics of her life. Just as some strange compulsion to have people, or perhaps herself, believe her to be ill and suffering was also. Illness and fear of illness build over constantly into Margaret's terrors about cash. She continually groaned that she and John had entered marriage with numerous debts. Those debts, however, had risen from John's month-long hospitalization in the winter before they wed. Even when they were both well, the fear of catastrophic illness and equally devastating expenses never left the writer's mind. She thought and wrote about these illnesses constantly. Her personal correspondence overflows with many references to the most diverse aches, ailments, diseases, conditions, seizures, and syndromes. There were always little infirmities, colds, flu, allergies, hives, and the old condition of abdominal adhesions. We talked about that on prior episodes, that these were probably symptoms of what we would now categorize as irritable bowel or one of the abdominal functional pain syndromes involving a amplified central nervous system with the gut-brain axis being shifted into a state of high alert, signaling that there was pain when there was actually not an inflammatory or obstructive condition. Getting back to her story, at another time she reported she had come down with malaria. Nine months after her marriage, however, she developed a new chronic complaint that changed her life permanently. A mysterious or baffling arthritic or rheumatoid condition that settled disastrously in her ankle. At least that's how she described it. She could no longer walk without the assistance of crutches and special footwear. These were clunky orthopedic shoes that became the talk of all of her friends and kind of a hallmark among her peripheral acquaintances of her inward pain. She insisted that for all the dysfunction in her foot, the ankle condition actually constituted only the most obvious manifestation of a more significant, deeper problem. A mysterious spring of corruption, she quoted her doctors, poisoned her whole body as this toxic fountain became the source of all other elements of one sort or another that played her in these years. She believed that if the doctors could only determine the source of this corruption, all her problems could be cured. In the search for this primary infection, she subjected herself to all manner of operation experiments after her marriage. Dentists pulled her teeth, the surgeons extracted her tonsils, all in an effort to stop the toxic flow. These produced their own train of new affliction. My tonsils were dreadful, she groaned to John March. No, I'm not going to speak of operations, but don't tell anyone, you, that it is a slight operation, no pain, and you're up in three days. It's been ten days now, and I'm getting to where I can eat and still can't swallow without pain. Appendicitis was nothing compared with it. Was tonsillitis the source of the greater poison? 
I'm waiting patiently to see if the tonsillectomy will have any effect on my foot. It seems that I have to watch my diet, teeth, tonsils, sinuses, etc. to make sure there's no poison being put out by any of them. And if I still don't improve, I guess they'll have to operate on my foot. Then she launched full steam into the foot condition. I am on crutches and haven't touched the floor in three weeks except on the glorious day that the doc told me he might have to fuse my ankle joints together and make it solid for life. I felt somewhat depressed, came home and bought a quart of rye, took three drinks, threw away my crutches, and got a taxi to visit all my friends. I had a lovely five hours. I didn't even know I had a bad foot until I sobered up when John came home and the poor angel kindly sat up all night rubbing the lame thing, that's her ankle. I guess I wouldn't have any husband at all for John as far from strong in his digestion as a decided tendency to blow up under the emotional strain of any type. He seemed constantly down with some complaint or another. His devoted wife always expected minor maladies to explode into another long-term visit to St. Joseph's. John and Peggy Marsh's aches and illnesses united them in the most extraordinary way. It helped define the very nature of their marriage. Health and illness again proved to be both cause and effect of her choices. The year after their marriage, John Marsh's health improved notably. His wife's health deteriorated drastically. This disparity provoked and bolstered her husband's argument that she should quit work. Her boss lacked empathy for her ailments. One of the frustrating things about journalism is that it took away time for her to write creatively during her hectic workdays. Her husband always had beautiful hopes for Margaret, eventually proving the genius in her writing. Let's take a pause and consider what you've heard so far. What you've heard is somebody who's been really struggling and really had her back up against the wall. And a doctor had one final idea of fusing her ankle, which is something that we sometimes do now. And usually most orthopedic surgeons to this day are very cautious in their recommendations as the benefit in fusing an ankle is not nearly the benefit or success you'll have in a hip or knee replacement, for example. With her back up against the wall, what did she do? Well, she went home and got drunk, which three drinks for somebody her size would have easily brought her above the limit and into the level of intoxication and what would have done temporarily at least to her pain and anxiety it reduced it for a good five hours she had been able to enjoy life and dance only to pay the consequences it's sad but many people who've fallen into the trap of addiction started gradually with one regional pain syndrome that gradually progressed unchecked like a domino effect, affecting more and more systems of the body and not getting great help, and then fall prey to some kind of addictive substance, whether it's alcohol or 
other opioids that temporarily help, but in the long term don't offer sustained benefit. Getting back to the story. Meanwhile, her fiction fought for a place with John, her boss, her sense of wifely duty, and her own flash. But the flash returned the favor. Life was terrible. Citing her bad foot, she quit work officially in May, but she kept a small income by freelance writing. For most of the summer, she continued to produce the journal magazine's gossip column. It entailed spending hours on the telephone picking up tidbits of society news. She loved it. By August, her life staggered towards a turning point. She gave up professional work entirely. Then the real horrors began. What did she do at the age of 26 when she left all employment? She read, for one thing. As a reader, Peggy, that was her nickname, was omnivorous. And all through the years, I knew she went to the library from one to three times a week and never came back with fewer books than she could carry. She read in transit, too. She wrote funny stories, for example, about riding the trolley line with her nose buried in one tome or story or another. I used to ride the car to town with your husband quite frequently, and I always had about ten books in my arms. But let me have a cargo of mystery murder stories. Boy, that would be great. Her sickness encouraged her to escape to literature. Her husband left his own picture of his wife as an invalid and bibliomaniac and insomniac that fall. What are your ways that you find escape from fibromyalgia? I'd love to hear and feel free to email me at drmichaellens at gmail.com. When her foot had given out, one of her husband's jobs was keeping her supplied with reading material. She had read so many books because she read so rapidly. However, at the end of 1926, her temper soon ruined her literature for her. Fiction failed to satisfy her appetite by summer. Even nonfiction soon fell. And with that, she nearly went insane. It was a god-awful time. Just at present, I am about as pleasant to live with as a porcupine or a snapping turtle, she exploded to her sister-in-law. My predisposition wears thin that I had even quarreled with Aggie Dearborn and Peggy Porter. Unheard of happenings. Then John would become frightened unless I lure you south just when you were in your most loving and helpful mood. Sink my fangs in the fleshy part of your leg. And then you butt me over the head with a portable typewriter and go north that I had an ingrowing disposition. It was less than half a joke. She was raging. It was about this time that she had a terrible explosion with her oldest friend, Courtney Ross. Courtney had heard about Mitchell's illness and stopped by with flowers. She found the apartment door ajar, walked in and proffered her roses. Peggy slammed them on the floor. She stamped her foot and shouted at me to get out and never returned. But she was utterly astonished and retreated sheepishly and did not return for years. 
Furious at the world, bitterly unsatisfied and consumed by pain, the young matron stewed in her own bile as fall turned cold and winter loomed. At some point in this gloomy season, she turned once again to her fiction. She began to write a novel about the Civil War. She began writing it in complete secrecy. Indeed, secrecy is the first, even primal characteristic of her writing. Gone with the Wind is now common heritage of English speakers everywhere on the planet. The popularity of the epic novel is surpassed only by the obscurity in which the author herself conceived and executed the novel and the mystery which she later surrounded its origins. Then the story of the epic novel begins with the understanding the author's pervasive desire for concealment. In this last section for today, what thoughts went through your mind? As you listen to her story, if you're going through fibromyalgia or you have a loved one or care for people with fibromyalgia, you'll recognize what I have often observed, which is depression symptoms occurring as the result of untreated fibromyalgia, not as the typical cause. They often occur together, but it's more in my observation and estimation that it is a response to ongoing worsening fibromyalgia symptoms. These coping strategies, or what sometimes we like to refer to as self-care, are ways to, at least on our own, find some respite from the constant ongoing pain, fatigue, and brain fog. And Margaret sought out a creative outlet. Maybe you are using art or other ways to help cope. I'd love to hear what are some of your best coping or self-care strategies to help you get through your fibromyalgia. I hope this episode has been helpful for you and for others who are wanting to learn more about fibromyalgia. If you can, I'd really appreciate it if you could hit the like or follow button. Please share this with as many others who you think would benefit from learning more about fibromyalgia. Until next week, Go Team Fibro.